Welcome to Mavericks. I'm Joey Garcia, and in this episode, we'll be speaking to one of the foremost voices in blockchain policy. She's a hugely influential figure in the finance sector globally and is head of international policy at Chainalysis. She's a true pioneer and a maverick. It's Caroline Malcolm. This is Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. All right, well, Caroline, it's awesome to have you here on one of our, our, our Maverick shows. But I, I wanted to start things off with, with, a, with an interesting question. So I was reading a bit about you, background, etc. And you're in the blockchain and crypto universe now, which analysis, etc. Um, so the expression that we often hear, you know, to the moon, I think when you were young meant something very different. I think you wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> That's true, Joey. So I how, did. How, how, I did. how did that story unfold? How did you go from the wish of being an astronaut to where we are today? Yeah, I worked, in two seconds. <laughs> I worked out that I wasn't very good at science, Joey. Okay, <laughs> that's where that dream ended. Um, so yeah, and from there, uh, from there, became a lawyer, um, and uh, found myself uh, many years later in in crypto. Incredible! That's been a, it's um, and before that, I so said before the the position that you have today. I mean, you you did a lot of stuff. I think um, with the OECD, mm. um, and I think. You were the founding um, head of the Global Blockchain Policy uh, Working Group, and that was 2018 yeah. or so, right? So yes. how, how did that happen, or what was the position or the trigger for that event, or how, 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 how did that unfold? Yeah, so it, it was a bit um, unexpected also for, for me. I had um, my background as a tax lawyer, mm-hmm. and I had been working on a project for the G20 on you know, digital platforms, you know, new ways of doing business and how they're upsetting you know, the traditional approaches to tax. Um, that project had a couple of month pause, So I was thinking about how to keep myself busy during that time. And it was around the time where we started to have the ICO boom. So it was a lot of interest also from a tax perspective, a lot of people Mm. making a lot of money. And so I decided to sort of just for my own interest, you know, I I started a course at at Oxford to understand a bit more about the technology and started to talk to a couple of the tax administrations and there weren't many at that time who had put out guidance about what you do if you make money or lose money on on, on Bitcoin, what it means for your tax position. Um, And then in those conversations, really realising that there was a lot of uncertainty about how to treat crypto just for tax purposes. And so that kicked off this project, which was part education and part um, survey on tax treatment of crypto all around the world. And, when, and that was because I think it was you were covering um, policy implications. Was yeah. it all tax or was it beyond that? Yeah, so this was I was still in the tax department at this stage, became more and more interested and around the same time the OECD had taken this decision to set up an AI observatory um, and the head of uh, the OECD's uh, business division at the time was quite, Greg Medcraft was quite interested in blockchain and, and crypto. So... I worked with him and, and managed that to, um, you know, there was an agreement that they would also set up the Blockchain Policy Centre. Um, and so that's when I left just focusing on tax and crypto to take on a much broader portfolio of everything crypto policy and blockchain policy related. Super. And that, that I mean, that's, that's amazing. Uh, but from there to sort of where you are today, I, I, had, I wanted to start off with like a question I'm sure you've answered many times, but... 
um, you've joined the channel analysis group, yeah. blockchain analytics. I, I think the starting point when people talk about virtual assets or crypto generally, it's always like, oh, at least it was years ago. This is all like crazy. Uh, it's all money laundering. It's all illicit. And yeah. no one really understands yeah. the, the, the tech. Like super high level. Mm. Um, what, 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 what do you see as, you know, that group, channel analysis being able to do to, I don't know, hold, control, monitor, supervise, maintain it. What, what, what are the special features of data analytics or blockchain analytics that, that exist for people who don't fully understand? Many people will, but yeah. Yeah, so it's it's incredibly different from, you know, other systems, whether it be, you know, sort of traditional finance or, or other sectors. And it really comes down to both the sort of transparency and the immutability of, of the underlying tech. And that means that we are able to see what's going on in the space. And the, the, the way I kind of try and make an analogy for people who are perhaps less familiar with the space is it's a little bit like having a map of the city. So, you know, all the transactions are transparent. But it's like having a map of the city, but you don't have any street names and you don't have any names of the buildings. And so what blockchain analytics firms like Chainalysis do is provide this overlay to help people navigate the city, which provides the names of the streets and the names of the buildings. What we don't do is we don't provide the names of the people living within those buildings or the people on the street, um, uh, to continue the analogy, but we, we provide that overlay just to help people navigate the space to say, well, that building over there, that's that's Coinbase, or that building over there, that's that's Binance. And so just to help people understand the kind of um, the, the key landmarks and, and that can be, as I said, it can be services like crypto exchanges, but it can also be on that illicit side. So um, darknet marketplaces, for instance. Yeah, yeah. and it, I mean, it's sort of the, even I suppose the simplest equivalent would be in the sort of bank context, you turn up with your 20 pounds or $20 to make a deposit and the bank literally looking at every single transaction relating to that $20 note since it was printed. Yeah, exactly. Rush, that, that's a, that's a and, and, and is that, do you see like more, of the industry or more of the authorities understanding that more and more? Is it making the world understand the, the use of this technology from a compliance perspective? Is that a sort of emerging thing? Are people now gradually starting to accept that it does exist? Or? Yeah, it's, we're definitely a lot further along the curve. So if I think back to the start of the Blockchain Policy Center in 2018, you know, through 2019, I mean, it was hard work to get people to return my calls to be like, you know, to governments being like, I want to talk to you about crypto, about blockchain. This is important. I think we need to be paying attention. And there was work obviously going on the anti-money laundering space, but there was very little going on elsewhere. Um, that started to shift, I'd say, about 2020. And today, you know, a couple of years on from that, um, governments are very engaged. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're all ready for action or they've taken action, but they're certainly much more engaged and they, they actually have a much better understanding of, of the sort of underlying tech and a little bit about, you know, how things are different. But it's still really, I mean, it, it is very revolutionary. It's a very different way of thinking no, about absolutely. things. Um, so there is still... still so let me, let me ask you something else because one of the things that, that you guys do, which is fascinating, mm. is this sort of global adoption mm. index. Yeah. And you monitor, yeah, everyone reads that year on year, yeah. et cetera. Everyone's always surprised. No one can ever yeah. guess. When I ask it's people true. who's number one in the world, no it's one true. ever guesses. It's true. It's Vietnam. <laughs> Vietnam, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah. it's incredible. And, and sort of to put Vietnam, not specifically that country, but mm. that territory, I mean, they, they, 
I think the emerging markets mm. seem to be dominating the adoption index at the moment. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So we have a the adoption index combines both sort of CFI, P2P, and and, and DeFi. Um, and when you, I mean, talking sort of in generalities, but generally, you know, emerging economies have stronger in CFI, less strong in DeFi. While advanced economies, it's more it's more DeFi than than CFI. Interesting. And then. So, but in what was also interesting, or, or let me ask you a question: Why, why, why is the adoption index so? Why is it so high in those countries? What's the primary function or use of the technology or asset in an emerging country, that, an emerging market that's different from a more developed market? What, 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 what are the primary drivers? Well, look, I think you know one of the realities of, of DeFi is that the user experience is still, you know, not where it will be in a couple of years or even in a couple of months. Um, and that means you have to have a certain degree uh, of understanding of, of technology, of code to, to mm. be able to sort of engage with it really effectively. Um, and I think a lot of the use cases we see, and you see this in terms of the patterns of, say, stablecoin usage in, in emerging markets, that, you know, you things like the remittance yeah. use case yeah. is much more... Is much more dominant. Yeah. I mean, remittances have got to be one. Um, I mean, is sort of currency stability another? Is that sort of access to a stable coin or access to a USD account, whatever it might be? Is that is that a driver as well of adoption in um, countries where there's you know, less um, trust or belief or in in that government or infrastructure? Yeah, look, it's you know it's hard to say what people's yeah. motivations are, but it's it is clear that. In countries where you have a greater volatility of, of the domestic currency, you do see see greater stablecoin uh, mm. usage as a, as a way to preserve value in, yeah. in, in, in those very variable markets. And I think the other thing you see um, is kind of some of the newer use cases, things like NFTs or gaming and so forth. That's really, that's exactly the I mean, I saw that and it was unbelievable, actually, mm. the volume yeah. on the NFT side yeah. of things and on the... Particularly around. Southeast Asia, I mean, um, you know, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, these are all really big markets. For incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. And that, that, so that, that's happening and the adoption is happening at different rates. Mm. And, and then obviously you get to sort of what are the halting sort of blocks to those adoption levels escalating or mm. more commercial adoption or larger percentages of the world. Some people, lots of people say different things. Um, some people say regulation mm. or law or infrastructure or policy or whatever it might be. Um, some people say trust uh, mm. in, in that counterpart. And that sort of brings us to a bit around where we are today. Yeah. Um, you know, where everyone knows about the FTX related stuff. But, you know, where do you think that that as an event has uh, affected the industry as it exists today. Super general open question. But. Yeah, look, it's it's I think there's no doubt that that trust has been broken. Um and I think kind of first and foremost is, you know, needing to keep in mind the people who have all been kind of directly affected by by what's happened. Um for the industry more generally, you know, this is a I think a significant challenge. It is at a time when, you know, the sort of tagline of blockchain has always been trustless, yeah. trust not required. Um, and that's really under some pressure uh, at the moment. Um, and, you know, there is this sort of, I think it's easy to kind of turn to, well, this is about CFI, this is not about DeFi, but but I, I think this is a little a little probably uh, too simplistic. I think the reality is is that what 
what, you know, from the little of what we know, um, mm. is still in the early weeks um, after after the events and still seeing a lot of fallout, um, is that this looks much closer to a sort of financial fraud issue than, than something sort of crypto or, or blockchain specific. Mm. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work that yeah, could be done to, to safeguard what, what in fact happened. What and what would you happened. say, Carolyn, what would you say to the comment that, um, and I've heard this sort of touted, et cetera, mm. that these are open, um, immutable, transparent systems um, that, you know, that FTX infrastructure has arguably sort of replicated what we've seen in not too distant history yep. um, in existing financial yes, services. So how, how could that happen if, I mean, what, how, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I think the reality is that we still don't have um, a lot of the, the controls, a lot of the experience in some of those safeguards um, that perhaps we, we take for granted in, in traditional finance. Um, and, and those, you know, the need to sort of transport some of those learnings, not all of them, because there are differences between the two systems, but um, yeah, some of those learnings into this space is, is still a, a work in progress. But equally, you know, in traditional finances, as I think you rightly say, um, it's been around for a lot longer and they still face many of these these issues around financial fraud, for example. I mean, you know, Wirecard, Madoff, Enron, I mean, we could, the, the list is long, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and so I guess this is hopefully um, a reckoning, not just for regulators, that, um, you know, if the objective is really, um, you know, protection of consumers, not acting is, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't solve that problem. And equally for industry, that this is kind of a, a call to, to step up and, and, and really demonstrate what can be done, but, but can be done in a, in a way that is, you know, safeguarding consumers as well as allowing the innovation. And let me, I mean, there's people talk in lots of different ways about FTX, et cetera. Yeah. It's affected the whole crypto industry, yeah. let's call it. But I mean, I, I do say to people sometimes it's sort of, um, it's not really anything to do with the underlying assets. Mm. It's not the actual virtual assets. Yeah. It's the, you know, the access point to those assets yeah. that this has happened at. So it has, it, nothing has arguably really changed in the underlying tech or yeah. anything it's been that that counterpart so how do you think in the next year two years three years will um develop more trust or mm. faith in those centralized uh, parties will it be a development or um of regulation um will those levels rise will they rise too high i don't know what what, what, what do you think yeah look i think that you know when I think about like the policy areas touched by crypto, the sort of six or seven of them, and I think the what those areas are haven't changed and won't change as a result of uh, FTX, but the the order of priority and the speed at which action is taken will will certainly change. So if we think about sort of a pre-FTX world, mm. I probably would have told you that things like um, market integrity, um, you know, looking at market manipulation, mm -hmm. for example, or um, uh, maybe financial stability were the major concerns of, of, of policymakers. I think from now there's going to be a lot more immediate focus on, on some of the areas like custody. 
Mm. vertical integration of activities across, uh, you know, a, a group of firms, a group of entities. Um, and some of, of course, the bankruptcy, bankruptcy protections as well mm. and what rights do consumers have to sort of be um, prioritised creditors in, in that process. Do you, do you think the guys or the platforms that are now, there's been a lot of discussion around mm. regulation, et cetera, um, a lot of transparency around assets that are held by different, yeah. it could be exchanges or platforms or whatever, but is that enough? I mean, if you see the assets that are held on the balance sheet of any entity in the world, mm. is that enough if you don't really know what they're being used for or if they're being leveraged or if they're being collateralized or they, et cetera, et cetera? That's, that's, is that a problem or is there technology to fix that? Is there... Look, I think, I think that there, there are going to be sort of emerging solutions to try and address these issues. Um, you know, there's still relatively, and we know this from all different sorts of sectors, you know, when it comes to sort of um, sort of the intention to, to defraud, that's still a very sort of human problem. Um, mm. So we can, bring, we can bring the transparency and we can certainly bring a lot more controls than, than we have today. And, and in some regards, we already have the technology and it's about just putting those processes, that's from the industry side or from the government side, putting the actual requirements in place. So I think we can make some progress and I think, you know, there will be more rules around, you know, leverage, mm. how you can use customer assets or more to the point how you can't use them. Mm. Um, but I think we're still very early days um, and I think people start looking around the world at what requirements other countries have in place already in some of those areas because there is a bit of a patchwork. So you might have some strong custody rules in one country and in another country you've got some rules around vertical integration. Um, but in terms of like a fully developed holistic framework, you know, there's much far fewer examples of that. Do you think, do you think Caroline, that today... Um, if people looked at a platform or a week ago, two weeks ago, yeah. whatever it was, uh, they looked at a platform. I mean, in the VASP context mm. or in a crypto exchange related context, um, I don't think consumers don't really do due diligence on sort yeah. of the regulation of a platform. Yeah. Um, so what do they look at? Do they look at where it's domiciled or do they look at, um, I think they probably do look at who, who the investors are because you, there's a certain presumption that if, you're backed by these really big, big names. serious names. Yeah. That, okay, well, they've looked at that properly. Is that yeah. is that is that where the trust used to be? Um, I don't yeah, know. and look, I think the reality is too. Um, consumers also look at just the ease of access. You know, we know this from the privacy world, for example. You people tell you they want privacy, and when then when you present them with a choice between privacy and a smoother user experience, they take the smoother user experience every time. So I think that's also got you know, a lot to do with it. How, how easily can I access this, this platform? Um, so there's, there's certainly, you know, that's, there's also sort of the, the consumer education part mm. of, of, of this process as well and how the sort of whether it be sort of consumer su suitability requirements or really looking at how what are the indicators of, of trust when you're choosing an exchange that, that you can um, that you can look to. Yeah, because it has been difficult. You've seen you know, lots of famous people marketing yeah. things in a certain way. Then you see five big names yeah. and you're sort of there's an element of tr more trust, I would probably guess, mm. on that than... Mm you know, 
the legislative framework of a, of a jurisdiction. I think that's... Yeah, well. and look, I, there's still, a, I mean, even something as basic as, you know, people think, oh, well, transparency, you know, all the transactions taking place on, on, on the blockchain or on a blockchain. Um, but the reality is when you're looking at a, um, like, a exchange, the majority of transactions aren't happening on, on the blockchain. Ha- once you're within the exchange, mm. they're happening off-chain. And I think most consumers probably aren't aware of that even fairly basic understanding of what actually happens within an exchange, what happens to their assets Mm. once they're sent into an exchange. Mm. And there is now, I'd say now there's probably, there is already or to an extent, um, I'm going to call it a flight to safety, Mm. Um, whether that's a counterpart or a particular asset or people are moving out of virtual assets into USD or yeah, whatever into Yeah, into stable coins we're seeing, into, uh, into personal wallets. Um, so people being concerned about can I trust? Well, that, that's exactly, so that's, that, yeah. and that is exactly my question now. So where is the trust going to end up? Do you want to move the trust away from that intermediary to that software or yeah. to that infrastructure? Is that, will, will this be a trigger for a move to decentralized finance? Look, in, in some ways, but there's still, I mean, there, from a sort of usability, you know, perspective, a lot of people are still just not interested in taking that much responsibility for their own assets. They want that to be someone else's problem and they're happy to pay for it to be someone else's, else's problem. So I think there is still that, that challenge of, um, of adoption of, of personal wallets. Um, and then, and as I said, DeFi also has a sort of a user access uh, challenge for, for the most part. Uh, there's still, I mean, there has been progress made, but it is still difficult to, um, to, to access in many cases from a, you know, it's not as easy as sort of going on a, a centralised mm. exchange. You don't download an app and there it is. So, um, but yeah, there are, I mean, we are going to see, I think, some changes in markets, but I think the biggest changes will be in the sort of centralised world. Um, because although, you know, having the option of decentralization, I think is really, really important. That's going, these, they're not in competition with each other. They serve different markets in the same way that we know that, um, you know, the people who have been in crypto for a long time Mm. aren't the same people who are buying NFTs, for example, like, these are, well, perhaps the better way to put it is that the, you know, the growth of NFTs has opened up a new group of people to, um, to, to tokens, to cryptocurrencies, to digital assets in general, not just the existing population of, of cryptocurrency users. Yeah. Do, do you think, I mean, NFTs have other complexities or we, we can maybe talk about that, but do you think that, and I keep going back to this theme of trust and mm. the counterpart, uh, if I open an account at a, bank in London or New York or Sydney or Singapore, whatever, there's, there's an element of, well, it's a bank and it's regulated. And there's loads of fine tuning between what that means and mm. there are slightly different requirements. But generally speaking, there's an element of security yes. in that. Yeah. Um, when you say you're a centralized exchange or you're a VASP, generally mm. speaking, you're a wallet provider, mm. it means like, or it can mean Lots of different things. It can things. mean lots of different. And it can mean lots of different things in how your funds are stored. Yep. It can mean lots of different things about what they've promised to do with your funds. Um, and so there isn't that same kind of commonality of understanding that, oh, if I give these people my money, they've got to exactly. hold it 
exactly. in trust and they can't touch it. Exactly. Um, people, you know, no one likes reading the the long legalese at the end of, you know, where they just scroll to the bottom and tick the box. Um, but that means that, you know, people aren't fully aware of what they've signed up to, I think, in many cases. Why, why, why is that? I mean, you're not going to go into loads of detail around the FATF and everything mm. else, but those initial recommendations in 2019, yeah. Yeah. at least they define what a VASP was, but... Um, to comply with those recommendations, really, yeah. and the FATF are not a not a, not a regulatory authority. No, um, but it, it was a very sort of KYC AML focus. Yeah, and do you think that that's where, where will things move? Do you think MiCar and everything that's happened in the EU will set new standards, or will things slowly escalate, or has this been an accelerator for all that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that we're it's still very thin on the ground when it comes to sort of prudential requirements. Exactly. Um, you know. AML, they discussed it since 2014, 2015. It finally started happening in 2019. Um, we're still a long way far from full implementation, as, as you know, Joey, and that's even just on that narrow bucket of AML KYC. The kind of prudential requirements, custody, which, you know, sort of includes, you know, fit and proper persons tests yeah. and, and custody requirements and capital requirements, liquidity requirements. This is still very, very early days and, and you know, uh, you know, it's it's really important to see sort of MICA finally um, getting finalised. Well, I think we're almost there. The final vote, I think, is now put off until next year, but we're, we're very, very close. Um, and that's just so important. Even if from a policy or government perspective, your only interest is in, is in consumer protection, you don't care about the innovation side, you don't care about new use cases. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, although I think that's a mistake, but even if all you care about is consumer protection, just either not acting or, you know, worse, banning it, um, just doesn't work. We know bans don't work. The data is really, really clear. Why, why do you say bans don't work? I mean, we've. I mean, the biggest example, of course, is, is China um, banned in well, banned on and off, and then sort yeah. of banned in in twenty twenty one. This year, you know, in our adoption index, back in the top ten, um, fastest growing adoption in the Middle East, Egypt, also got a ban in place. It's the nature of the technology means that, you know, sort of short of shutting off the internet, this is not something you can ban. So as I said, you, you know, you may, not, if you, you may not like it as a government. Um, as I said, I think that's probably the, not the right approach because there is a lot of positive things that, that we see coming out of the industry. Um, but even if that's, that's your view and you want to just protect people, um, including protecting them from themselves sometimes, um, you do need to regulate. Like, it's just is critical. It, is it regular? I mean, will it be, I, I think it will, but will it be regulation or is it, again, is it a question of just, you know, the market determining what's trustworthy and what isn't trustworthy? You use platform or DeFi platform X because lots of people use it and yeah. you just follow a trend yeah. or, or will we get to a stage of people actually understanding a bit more of what it means to be regulated in jurisdiction A, B, C, D, E, F, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is the vast majority of users don't, you know, they've got exactly. other things to do with their time, right? Yeah. And equally, we don't want people being guinea pigs um, while people work out, you know, oh, I tried this one, you know, and then it collapsed. Like we, we don't want to be putting people in, in that position. And that's where I think, you know, um, whether it be 
industry standards driven by, you know, self-regulatory organisations, for example, or it be enforced through government. You also, you know, you do have market, you have norms, you know, there are these different kind of forces that you have. But those are two really important ones where, you know, if government doesn't take action, industry, this is an opportunity, not a burden. I think historically it's been seen as a burden. Oh, we have to do compliance. Actually, this is like a selling point and a way to open up to a huge amount of, of people who otherwise don't trust and they, they need that that reassurance of having some sort of framework in place. It, it will be and it's uh, it's going to be super interesting. It's, it's going to be... It's going to be interesting. We were like, just to put a Zappa hat on for a second, we mm. already operate under requirements to segregate uh, and control customer assets yeah. off the balance sheet of the, the assets of the, of the VASP in, mm. our, in our context. Um, and yeah, big balance sheet protection. That's also something in, in, in the last few weeks. People haven't really looked at that too much. But mm. I mean, I think the move to... The jurisdictional stuff is really difficult. Some countries move very, very quickly yeah. and they, they produce very developed frameworks, maybe too quickly. And others, you know, the platform say, well, I don't really want to operate there if the rest of the world, the world is operating is outside of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't really know. I don't know. I mean, if you put a guesstimate out there for, you know, FTX has happened, you don't need to go into any of the specifics. Mm. Um, how would you play out like what's going to happen? This is really difficult. <laughs> what's going to happen in the next two years after that? What 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 is? I brought my crystal ball, so don't worry, Jerry. We can do this. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? What what is going to happen? Is this has this set the industry back a year, two years, five years, and it'll continue on the same track? Is this an end event for? Virtual assets as a, as a concept, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, look, I definitely don't think it's an end event. Um, I think that it's going, you know, I think firstly there's going to be a lot of reflection. I think that's that's very important. As I said, right now it's early days. We still don't know the full extent of who's affected and the full extent of what exactly happened. So those are going to be two important things. Um, I think it is going to accelerate the, the regulatory piece and I think that's quite interesting because from, uh, you know, if we think about crypto natives versus the TradFi um, sort of world, TradFi has increasingly sort of been dipping their toe in this space. Mm. From a regulatory perspective, they're very well placed. This is a, you know, the world of regulation, of compliance, this is something they know very, very well from, from you know, working in traditional finance. Um, and so, in fact, for some of them, this is a bit of an opportunity as that regulation comes in because that's something they can bring to the table. They're not, you know, they're not on the cutting edge of the technology. They're not kind of breaking the, the sort of ground when it mm. comes to new products and things. But in terms of being able to bring, you know, trusted brands, you know, compliance processes and so forth, you know, those are things that they can bring to the table. And, and will platforms like Chainalysis, will, will the services that you offer, is that also evolving and developing? Is it more into sort of, you know, know your transaction type universes? Is, is that going to help in, in everything that's happening at the moment? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of demand in, in thinking about, you know, moving on from just investigations or sort of just the kind of narrow lens of AML compliance um, to really, or supervision of AML compliance from a government perspective, to really think about, well, what other things can the can the data tell us? How, can the data tell us, you know, what some of the exposures might be? Can the data tell us about more about what's actually happening in my jurisdiction and what I need to worry about? 
about, you know, are people selling into my jurisdiction from overseas? Because this, this challenge you're talking about of, you know, I always think like the world of digital assets kind of brings all the challenges that we thought we had with the internet and then multiplies them mm. by like 10. As I said, that I, the project I was working on before doing this was about the platform business model and fundamentally about this issue that you can operate in a country without having a physical presence there. Mm. This is the heart of, of digital assets. And so how do you actually, you know, bring a global approach and we've seen some interesting attempts you know when the sort of I mean ill-fated but the Libra project was getting underway um, you know the Swiss kind of developed this regulatory college model mm -hmm. there are ways to kind of square the circle of geographic boundaries in an industry which which doesn't doesn't have any such concept um, but it is going to take a lot of sort of innovative thinking and it's going to require you know regulators to be able to experiment with new approaches but also industry to help out to to kind of come up with the tech to solve some of those Regulator, problems. Like regulatory innovation is yeah. an amazing and sort of fascinating term and definitely something I always talk about this. Mm. Um, you know, leg legislation cannot evolve at the speed of uh, technology. Um, regulation can't really keep track. Yeah. So it needs new thought processes. And yeah. I'd say that in the last few months, there's been a much more open conversation around that. I wonder whether this has been a bit of a setback to all of that, the, the concern with everything that's happening. And, but let, let me ask you a kind of specific question around that. So platforms like or blockchain analytics yeah. firms, yeah. What, what would you say to the, the difficult question that it's, it's fascinating and incredibly transparent in what can be generated, mm. but it's after the event activity. It's not preventative, it, or is it? Or can it be preventative? Look, absolutely, in the sense that, you know, you can see real time the activities can going on. You can see if you're looking and if you know where to look, and this is where this education piece comes in because, um, you know, whether you're in the industry or, or government, you know, as I said, the focus really has been on AML. People haven't been thinking about how to use the data for these other challenges like um, contagion risk or looking at, um, you know, uh, issues relating to market manipulation and, and so forth. So knowing where to look and how to look means, you you know, you absolutely can get a better understanding of the risk, but it's still a very nascent, it's still a very nascent space. But I think there is opportunity there and it's going to be a combination of the on-chain data and off-chain data plus reported data. So, you know, and that's the difference between this space and TradFi, which relies very heavily um, on, um, on reported data, always after the fact. Mm. Um, you know, because this concept of embedded supervision is almost still very theoretical mm. in, in mm. the TradFi space. Here, it's not even so much as embedded, it's just it's there for everybody to see. But you, it's, again, you, you, it just looks like a, a jumble of... of, of letters and numbers, being able to kind of interpret that and give it meaning is, is, is kind of where... And will, will things move towards, like, I mean, there's a lot of privacy-related mm. arguments, uh, you know, a move against sort of the transparency of these things, lots of different new solutions to try to preserve zero-knowledge-based. Yeah. Um, you know, is, that, is, it, is compliance also an evolving concept in, in the blockchain? Are there new ideas appearing all the time? I don't know. Yeah, no, there is absolutely, I think. And, you know, it is possible to, um, you know, 
there is a balance to be struck between sort of privacy preserving but also being able to meet the regulatory obligations, which I think it's important to keep in mind. People always think, oh, this is sort of regulatory, the regulators are putting these on this. But, you know, foundationally, you know, these rules come from a place which are looking to place safeguards for the society that we all want to to live in. Um, So they're not inherently bad things. Mm, Um, They're there to protect us. Now, maybe the balance isn't always right or the process isn't always right, but it's important to keep in mind, and I think that's where the kind of collaboration between public and private is needed, is like this is the objective, understand what this objective is, and then think of the innovation is in like, you know, there's many roads to Rome and and Mm. working out, well, don't just have to go the same road that we've always been driving along. We can get there in different ways. Is that, is that kind of, we mentioned once or twice, we talked about adoption, Mm. talked about some of the sectors or the NFTs in particular, boom, talked about some of the problem scenarios. I mean, difficult prediction, but, um, you know, if the adoption numbers are extremely high in emerging markets, Mm. in the NFT space, and it's unregulated, and no one really knows what's happening on these massive unregulated platforms. And you've talked about market manipulation. Mm. Is that is that another area? Is is it an area of fascinating opportunity, or is it another area that's problem waiting to happen? Yeah. Look, there is. Look, there's already some. You know, there's enforcement actions already taking place relating to different types of market manipulation, insider trading, for example, or um, you know, wash trading cases, for example. So there is some early steps in in that regard. Um, but I do think that is one area where you know there hasn't been a huge amount of attention historically, and the focus is is slowly coming onto that. Both industry in terms of well, okay, how do I make sure my platform isn't used for that those purposes, um, and also from regulators, well, how do I identify that um, when it's happening? As you guys can see, I mean, Janessa yeah. can see the data. I mean, you, you hear about NFT marketplaces. Yeah, we've, we've, we've published some case studies on some of the NFT wash trading, for example, yeah. that, that, that's taken place. Um, yeah. Is it, is, it, is it, do you think it's something that from a policy perspective, people are starting to become aware of, but it just sits lower down the Richter scale or the importance list when you start talking about CFI and massive exchange platforms or... I don't know. Is it is it going to be the next thing that comes onto the focus points for? Look, I think it. I think it will be one of them. I think that. I mean, really, I think one of the top ones now is going to, it's going to be custody. This problem, yeah. this question of custody and prudential requirements more broadly, um, and then I expect um, contagion, sort of financial stability risks, both within the sector and between the sector and TradFi and between the sector and the real economy. And is then, that happening? Is that happening? Is that impact already happening now? Or I think. I think not. I think that kind of the 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 kind of spillover impact into traditional finance, for example, we haven't seen a huge you know um, impact so far. But certainly, we're seeing it within the sector, though. Whether it be what happened, you know, flowing out of um, you know Terra Luna through to Three Hours Capital and all the people, all the entities that were affected by that, and now obviously with with FTX and learning about sort of how wide their reach was um, and again these are things we're, we're still sort of learning the actual facts of there's a lot of speculation but but certainly there does seem to be um, uh, a broad reach there so at the moment it seems you know within the industry to be 
um, contained within that. But I think certainly, and I think earlier this year in, in February, the FSB came out quite clearly to mm. say this is an area where we're we have growing concerns about just because of the adoption is skyrocketing um, and the interlinkages between the different sectors are, are growing. Okay, I'm going I'm to ask you two last questions. Yeah. The first one is um, what, do you think, what do you think is, do you think that education and the learning for like younger people or mm. people through whatever it is, school systems, university systems, do you think that's something that's slightly missing or something that needs to be focused on to get to a stage where consumers and users understand the space? But is that a gap or do you think that's already happening? Oh, I think it's definitely a gap, a huge gap. And I think this is this, um, you know, I think the fact it's even in formal education, you know, we're still very far away from even just teaching people about sort of per personal finance generally. So, you know, it's quite a stretch to imagine that they're going to start educating them on digital assets. Um, and even just the sort of materials that are available um, mm. to learn about this stuff. Obviously, it's changing and, you know, whether it be sort of TikToks or YouTube videos and so forth, there is things. But you, you know, you need a sort of a, a starting point. And, and if you're interested in, and go out looking for it then you'll find something which which probably meets your need but there's not a lot sort of that that comes to people organically uh yet mm. and that that's uh, and it will make a difference i think people getting more and more familiar understanding things um i will often i've heard you and we all talk about people actually using the technology mm. or doing something themselves yeah. as the best way to actually yes. learn what yeah. this is and, it is. and not learning via Twitter. So no. And I think, I mean, people, I mean, when, you, when you're not just digital native but sort of um, your concept of digital is very different for, for younger generations in the sense that you have this idea. We often talk about, well, we do things on Zoom, for example, and then we do them in real life. But... For the younger generation, it's not such the division. You either things in the virtual world and things in the physical world, but they're all real life. And so I think just mm. that shift means that things, the concepts of digital assets um, and thinking beyond crypto to, you know, tokenized art and so forth is not such a bizarre concept. Mm. It's like, well, of course it ha this has value because I spend my, you know, a, a significant number of hours yeah, of my day yeah, 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 yeah. in this virtual world. So, yes, that has that has value. Mm. And then I'm going to the last thing. So where we, we've lived like the last few weeks, yeah. problems, we've talked about them, et cetera. Um, that's been a setback. What, what, how, what do you think the next, what's going to happen next? How long will we take to get back to where we were two weeks ago? Will that be six months, 12 months? Just a guesstimate. Or, or what do you think? the next six months are going to bring in terms of focus? Is it going to be managing contagion? Is it going to be regulatory sort of enforcement? Is it going to be development? I don't know. What, what do you think the next six months have in yeah. store? So, look, I think on the sort of policy regulation front, there'll be a lot of conversations. Regulation moves slowly. Mm. Um, and there'll be a lot of conversations um, and, and the kind of the priority areas I mentioned are going to be the kind of the focus there. Are we going to see sort of significant new regulatory developments? Probably not in the next six months. We're going to see some interesting things, I think, out of some of the international groupings like IOSCO and mm -hmm. the FSB and so on and so forth. Um, but actual sort of concrete requirements, I think that's going to be a little bit slower, more in the sort of 12 to 24-month uh, time frame. That's an opportunity for industry, though, mm. as in the opportunity to step up and offer concrete solutions 
as an industry as a whole, not just individual sort of uh, companies doing things but really doing something collectively. Um, so I think, you know, that's important. In terms of rebuilding trust, I think that's going to be a, that is going to be an ongoing uh, process which, you know, isn't going to be finished in sort of in, in, in six months. I think the reality is, though, that there are some really strong use cases and I think people who, who are involved in those, who access those, aren't going to be deterred. They're going to understand. But it's going to really going to be about the new users and opening up this space, whether it be new retail users or the institutional space. Mm. But I think the reality is the greatest barrier for the institutional space still remains about this sort of regulatory clarity piece. Mm. I think that's good. I, I completely agree. Kind of loads more I could talk to you about. I'm going to say one last thing. You were very, very young. You didn't quite make it as a maverick astronaut. <laughs> um, you made it in the OCD, and that was awesome, that, that base layer. And then I think what you're doing now is fantastic as also. Thanks, I hope you can continue pushing on the front end, and we'll all be <laughs> here to help. Thanks um, a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. Please like and subscribe for more episodes. <laughs>